0: Hello Vision Nation, on today's show we have a very special guest. I have the privilege of speaking to Michael Robbins. Michael has been the Chief Investment Officer at six different investment firms over the past 37 years. He is also a professor at Columbia University, where he teaches Quant Investing, including graduate classes in Tactical Asset Allocation and ESG. Michael has a new book that was released this summer The book is called Quantitative Asset Management, Factor Investing and Machine Learning for Institutional Investing. I've read through the book and it's a phenomenal resource. I highly recommend it. I will provide links to Michael's website and his book in the show notes. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. And thanks for reading my book. (laughs) That's great. It was, I, you know, sometimes reading can be kind of dry, especially when you're looking at a textbook, but I have to say the language that was used in this book made it very approachable. And uh, I really, I learned quite a few things from it. So I highly, highly recommend it. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy to hear you say that
1: it's, it's hard to communicate some of these topics and uh, some of the chapters are particularly cumbersome uh, because they're, things that need to be said are not easy to say. And that's actually one of the reasons why I wrote the book. A lot of the topics are easily found on the internet and they're often oversimplified or even wrong. Uh, they're, they're usually written by people who have some self-thought experience, or they may be very experienced, but just don't have the format to convey all the information that's necessary to understand the topic. Uh, and so that's that's really why I wrote a book, and it's, it's a kind of a big book. And the reason why is there's just so much to say to just get the minimum across. And it, it's pretty evident now with ChatGPT and, and all the hype around AI, uh, there's a lot of articles written by people who don't understand the technology that well. And uh, there's a lot of nuance to it, and it's very easy to use it incorrectly. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's important to read a book like this to really understand properly what's going on.
0: Oh, yeah. Especially in these times, you know, all the headlines around ChatGPT and all that stuff. Uh, So I do want to ask you, you know, kind of thinking about things high level, in your opinion, is the market perfectly efficient or are there certain opportunities that exist out there to outperform? Yeah, it's definitely
1: not efficient, but not everyone could take advantage of that. Uh, So a lot of your viewers may be familiar with Bernold and Kahn's uh, fundamental law of active management, which basically says that the components of your ability to make money involve your skill, which not everyone has. In fact, very few people are truly skillful. Uh, Your access to the market, how many opportunities you have to choose from and the correlation between those. In other words, how different they are, because if you have several opportunities that are identical you might as well have one and every company, not every company, but most companies are different from other companies. And you have to assess that for yourself. You have to be honest with what your skills are, what your access to the market is and what your goals are. And depending on those things, you may be able to take uh, advantage of inefficient markets, or you may be able to hire someone for a fee, or you may not even be able to afford that. And all those things, are difficult and all of them are related to your ability to access them. So yeah, the markets are definitely not efficient, but not everybody can turn that into money.
0: Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a good caveat there. Uh, And so what would you say are some indicators that one has found a market where there could be potential mispricing of assets that somebody could benefit from potentially?
1: Yeah, so there's there's a number of things that can provide opportunities to take advantage of mispricings. And and like we just talked about, the skill and the breadth are one, um, finding a niche is really important. If you want to invest in Apple, everybody is looking at Apple. You have to be Einstein to find an opportunity in Apple that nobody else has seen. In fact, uh, famously, a lot of people as smart as him said that you couldn't. And so it's a lot more convenient to find something that not a lot of people are looking at, or people are too lazy to take advantage of, or, you know, or just out of the way. So that's really the best way to do it. Uh, retail investors or, or investment advisors often look to private investments to find smaller, more out of the way investments where there are opportunities that exist only because other people haven't seen them. And that's a great way to make money if you don't have huge resources and skill. If you're working in a really well-capitalized hedge fund like Renaissance, well, they can find opportunities everywhere because they're really smart and they have lots of resources. So um, it really depends on what your circumstance is. But certainly trying to find something that's attractive to you, but maybe not attractive enough to other people is a great way to identify opportunities
0: hmm That's a great point. So I guess it has to be a certain threshold where it doesn't attract so much competition. There's kind of a limited amount of money that could be made in this sort of place, but it's not enough money that it would attract some of the big, really, you know, institutional investors that have billions of dollars that they can allocate to to squeezing out some profits from there. Uh, that yeah. Makes sense. And it's
1: really a balance. And th- that's what most of the things are uh, that I talk about in the book and in real life. Uh, there's usually not one simple answer, it's weighing a balance. So for instance, uh, a strategy that's very popular among retail investors is tax loss harvesting. And that's very much dependent on what your commissions are like, You know what your trading opportunities are. There are some firms with virtually zero commission costs. They have dark pools where they cross trades or they use payment for order flow and they can have a really highly frequent uh, tax loss harvesting strategy. Others have higher commissions. They don't have those advantages. Maybe they can only harvest tax uh, tax lots for monthly, quarterly, yearly. Their opportunities are much more limited. Um, so it, it, it's different for everyone. Uh, it's nuanced, and and that's what makes it a great opportunity. If there was a one solution that fits all, there'd be one company providing the solution, and everybody'd have to pay them a commission.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And I guess it's funny to think about. If you go on any popular forums online, so many people will discuss the big companies, you know, the Teslas and the Apples and stuff like that, where they are essentially competing against, you know, the smartest people that have all the resources that have all the money behind it. So it's funny, I guess in their case, they should probably take a a different approach, like you mentioned, and focus on maybe different markets, different smaller names.
1: Yeah. There's always interesting exceptions though, like the the meme craze, right? They... That's like the opposite of good investing and any well-capitalized investor uh, or a program uh, who's not aware of this phenomenon would lose a lot of money betting against them. So, uh, you know, there, there's opportunities on both sides. You just have to be aware of, of all the things that are going on and, and make the right bets. Uh, but uh, yeah, even the most well-capitalized
0: people can get it wrong. Oh, yeah, for sure. The, 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 what a wild time in the markets. All the meme stuff. Do you think that's kind yeah. of gone away or do you think it's, you know, it's making a comeback? What are your thoughts? Because with social me- media these days and Twitter, um, individual people that have a big following have so much more power in terms of influencing other people to take certain investment actions. So what are, what are your thoughts on that?
1: yeah, that's certainly an interesting new twist to it. Uh, the the social aspect of investing has always been a primary component, which makes it hard for quantitative methods to uh, forecast, right? Uh, the market is just the result of a lot of people's opinions who really believe in in finding uh, underpriced things. and um you know, sometimes're disappointed because uh, momentum traders are able to, uh, take advantage of forces that contradict, but, uh, the, the meme craze is kind of special in it's, uh, the way that people who are not professionals can access it and really move the market, uh, in a concerted fashion. Uh, so it's an opportunity for people who can study it and take advantage of it. A lot of companies can look at things like Twitter feeds and other social media to get, um, insight into the market and and maybe out predict the people who are actually involved. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity there for the more sophisticated people. They just needed to get up to speed and it might've taken them a heartbeat to, to start getting involved. But I think that they're, they're ahead of the curve now. I bet mm-hmm. the people at Renaissance and D.E. Shaw and, and all those places, they're doing better than the meme investors on their own investments. They can see them coming and take advantage of them.
0: mm mm-hmm. I I mean, that makes total sense. They have access to, you know, the smartest scientists they have access to all of this data and they have models that have worked for many years. So it makes sense that they could be, would be able to take advantage of this sort of of environment.
1: Yeah. They were probably caught flat footed at the beginning. There are some really famous sophisticated investors who didn't see it coming, but now it's, it's pretty well-known. Uh, they certainly know about it. And, uh, The information is not very private, so they should be able to access it and act on it. And the people who are doing that stuff may not be the most sophisticated investors and may have uh, a a disadvantage uh, when they're competing against these big funds who realize that the craze is available. Uh, But it's always been part of the market. And that that's a pretty important theme. Uh, nowadays, when everybody's talking about AI so much, and, and it seems like it's a revolution, it really isn't. Uh, all these technologies have evolved over a long period of time, they just didn't explode on the scene. It may seem that way to people who haven't followed it. But if you ask people who are involved, they've been Uh, researching these statistical methods and these machine learning methods and these AI methods for decades. And it just became apparent to a lot of people now. And uh, it's the same thing is true with the meme craze and with the social aspect of investing. It's not new. It's different, but it's not revolutionary. And people just had to adapt and uh, react
0: to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I wanted to ask you about um, arbitrage and maybe if you could discuss some arbitrage opportunities that you've encountered in your career um, and just your thoughts around arbitrage opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so on.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that's a really fascinating subject. A lot of people, especially students, are really interested in arbitrage because it seems like such a cool thing, right? You can just make money using math, guaranteed. And um, the the truth is, pure arbitrages are very rare and very fast. Right, so the high frequency traders do a lot of that, but even they have um, risks in terms of execution time. Right, so even if they want to say buy gold in New York and sell it in wherever Hong Kong, uh, there's a time delay. There, it's it's pretty hard to be absolutely a hundred percent sure it'll work, but you can be pretty confident in it. Most things that people call arbitrages would work perfectly if you can execute them immediately and you could do all the parts of them precisely at the same time. And that's almost never true. Even in very uh, pure arbitrages like basis trades, uh, you have to transact in the futures contract and the underlying instrument and also finance the instrument over the term of the futures contract. So you have at least three parts. Each of which has to be executed perfectly for you get it right. Uh, so there's always a little risk. More commonly, there's risk that you can't even execute. There's some part of the trade that you just can't really do, and you have to take some risk on that. And what people often mean by arbitrage is that uh, they're comfortable with that one risk. And they can hedge up several different parts of the trade and be exposed only to the thing that they're comfortable with and not a bunch of randomness that they're not willing to be exposed to. And those things, there's plenty of them. They they exist a lot and mostly in these niche trades where they're a little unusual, you have to find them uh, and they're not obvious to someone who just wants to use the internet and look on a few websites. Uh, you have to be uh, a real expert in a specific thing. And some people make a lot of money trading these niche project products um, and they're not necessarily really smart people, but they really know that thing inside and out. They know all the things that could go wrong with it. They know all the terms of the contract, uh, all the things that could possibly happen with the financing rates and things like that. Uh, and so I think that's the real key to identifying an opportunity and arbitrage and to taking advantage of it is to find something that you have to be, uh, that's not so easy and to become an expert in it and just really be the go-to guy for that opportunity.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, it's not something that you could just Google arbitrage opportunities and and, and find an opportunity that way. It's definitely you gotta be a domain expert, I, ta- I take it, and really kind of understand a specific market and its nuances.
1: Yeah, a good example of that are the uh, the market makers on the exchanges. So maybe like an options market maker in, in a handful of stocks on the American Stock Exchange. You know, Many years ago, uh, those guys were great at what they did. They knew their stock inside and out. They were able to calculate uh, how much the options were worth with different strikes and different expiries and, and all sorts of things. Uh, and if you ask them about something completely different, they'd probably have no idea. But they knew everything about what they needed to know.
0: And what's one example? I recall an interview that you did where you talked about the SOS bandits. Can you you tell tell our viewers about that?
1: Yeah, that's a fun story. Uh, Back, I think it was the early 90s, uh, the market makers on the NASDAQ exchange uh, had to make markets on two different computer systems. One was for large trades, and one was for smaller trades. The small order execution system, the SOEs, and so, given the choice between uh, adjusting their markets for large sizes and small sizes, they would generally change the market in the large size first because that was riskier; they could lose more money, and then they would adjust the small order system. And what these SOEs bandits did, what that they were called, uh, SOEs bandits, they watched the large system. And when the bids and offers changed in the large system, they'd hit the bid or lift the offer in the small system. And so they were able to take advantage of the time difference between when the trader uh, adjusted his first market and his second market. Now, obviously, that didn't persist forever. All the trader had to do was hire an assistant to help him and uh, and adjust the markets on the two systems simultaneously. But for some time, that opportunity existed. And all those people had to do was jump on the small system as soon as they saw a change on the large system. So that was a time arbitrage uh, that they took advantage of in the identical stock on uh,
0: different exchanges. Wow. What what sort of time, how long would it take? Are we talking about seconds here, minutes, or do you know roughly how much time they had to to put the trade in? I don't remember. I'm sure it was very little time. I'm sure they just had
1: to pounce on it and just watch it all day. <laughs> uh, and you know, nowadays it would be impossible because computers would minimize the time. And, and that's kind of what high frequency traders do is uh, in part, they, they arbitrage different venues where they can trade. And, and they use uh, payment for order flow to identify these opportunities and try to act on them quicker than other people in the market
0: wanted to also ask you about so chatter about arbitrage what are your thoughts on outliers you did mention renaissance technologies briefly um what do you think about them and about warren buffett just your overall thoughts you know a very different approach to making money in the markets but both of them are incredibly successful at what they do Yeah. Yeah. Those
1: are two great examples of two very different strategies. And I think it's uh, an important uh, thing to think about now that technology is advancing so quickly. Uh, It's the ability for the market to leverage technology and do trades is increasing rapidly and that will eliminate a lot of the easier tasks. So like we were just talking about, you know, the high frequency arbitrage, people can't even compete with that anymore. And some of the lower skilled uh, trades that can be automated will be done by machines. And I think we'll be left in this kind of bipolar world where we'll have people like Renaissance and people like Buffett. And they're at the polar opposites of these trades. So Renaissance uh, invests heavily in technology. They're very well capitalized. They have smart people and they're able to compete with the best people in the market, the fastest people in the market. And on the other side of the equation, you have people like Warren Buffett who um, have access to trades that other people don't have. He can get financing. Uh, He can understand complex things like investing in banks better than most investors can. And he uses a lot of common sense that computers aren't necessarily that good at. And so uh, Warren Buffett may focus on the kinds of things that computers aren't good at. Renaissance focuses on things that computers are good at, but they're the best ones at doing it. And then the people in the middle are going to be increasingly out of luck and unable to compete. Mm. So I, I think they're really good examples of how the market's going to really drift in those two directions. Now, right now, we're not quite there yet. There are a lot of people without a lot of resources who can compete. They can use inexpensive programs uh, like the MATLAB programming language or Python, and they can use machine learning and they can figure stuff out. There's still a bit of democratization involved where people can compete. But over time, those models are going to become more proprietary, more advanced and hidden and private. And uh, I think the ability for common people to compete against people like Warren Buffett or companies like Renaissance will become harder and harder.
0: Mm -hmm. That that makes a lot of sense. What, uh, what sort of timeline do you think you put on that? How long before those people in the middle would not really be able to compete?
1: I think it's already happening to a large degree. Um, so the people in the middle, that those are kind of the people I wrote the book for. And an example of that may be with, uh, say, ChatGPT, which is very popular right now, obviously. And so a lot of people are using ChatGPT to do things that it's not good at. Uh, it's not good at identifying facts and making analyses. What it is good at is, is summarizing the data that it's given. And so one example of that, uh, a way to use some of the techniques in the book is to produce that that data, feed it to the algorithm, and say, use only this correct data to make a correct analysis. Instead of just saying, hey, ChatGPT, what do you think about this trade? Then it'll just look on the internet and come up with some nonsense. Mm -hmm. So you first need to do the analysis and feed it to the machine. And people can do that now. And there's still, I think, quite a bit of time for people to continue to do things like that, uh, maybe on the order of years. But in terms of like the higher end of using those technologies, there are companies like Bloomberg who made Bloomberg GPT. They don't use (laughs) chat GPT. They have a proprietary model fed with their very expensive, very accurate data. And so already months after the introduction of the open source tools, we have very sophisticated proprietary tools who can absolutely beat the open source tools head for head. Now, they may not be as fast or they may not be as small, uh, but they do have superior training and information. So it's already happening. It's going to happen very quickly, but that doesn't mean the people in the middle will be out of luck right away. Uh, they do have to act quickly. And most importantly, they have to use the technology properly. And it's mm-hmm.
0: very easy to use it incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Uh- and and I mean, those people in the middle, they don't have to take an active approach to their investments as well. They could you know, potentially just do passive and benefit from the markets that way. Uh, what are your thoughts on the active versus passive debate, I guess? Well, you did mention that it's possible to outperform the market. Um, do you think, I've heard that the market can't be 100% passive because there, there's no price discovery. What, so what's your take on kind of where the balance is, how much of it can be passive and active and um, just enter any general thoughts around that?
1: Yeah, I, I think it, it goes back to uh, the fundamental law of active management. That's a pretty good way to to summarize it, that it depends on how much skill you have and how much access to the market you have. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're a renaissance, you have all the skill you need. Uh, You can do lots of trades, take advantage of every little discrepancy that you can find. Uh, If you're a retail investor, you probably don't have as much skill. You certainly don't have as much resources and uh, you have to stick to lower frequency trades. Now it's true that two different investors can make money being on opposite sides of a trade, as long as they have different uh, time goals. So Renaissance can make money selling Apple in a microsecond and Warren Buffett can make money selling Apple on a 30 year horizon. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, there's, there's lots of different opportunities for different kinds of investors. And, um, a lot of them may involve some thoughts. So, uh, Many people were speculating about what would happen when the the NASDAQ uh, made those caps on the larger tech stocks. People weren't exactly sure how the math was going to work out until shortly before it happened. And so there were some bets that you could make based on probability and intuition. uh, And those are discrepancies that that you can make money from, even if you're a passive investor uh, with a long time horizon. Um, If you're truly passive, if you have no skill and um, your best bet is just reduce your costs, uh, then maybe you're better off just buying indices. There's a point where your effort is not only wasted, but will work against you because you have to pay commissions and there are behavioral biases that cause you to choose the wrong things. Uh, So where you fall on that spectrum of resources and skill will determine how active or passive you can be. Uh, But I think it's very unlikely that there'll be a point that where being passive is the right choice for everyone. Mm -hmm. Somebody has to make the market efficient. Somebody has to benefit from that. And it's, it's possible, but unlikely that there'll be one dominant company that does that, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's possible Renaissance may be dominant, this year, and DE Shaw may figure out a way to beat them next year, uh, they're working uh, against each other. There's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of competition. There are proprietary models and people who are not allowed to share information. And uh, they'll probably be companies that can take advantage of inefficiencies, even in a highly efficient market.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. And all the incentives are there too, because you know, if you can figure it out, you make more money. <laughs> Absolutely. The incentives are there. And importantly, the uncertainty
1: is there, right? There's very little pure arbitrage. And so there is quite a bit of randomness and uncertainty. And that creates opportunity because even if you're well-capitalized and brilliant, you could be wrong.
0: Mm -hmm. That's that's a great point. And and I wanted to shift gears a little bit. Uh, You mentioned biases and how they can affect the investing process. Um, what are some biases that you've seen other investors have, which have hurt their performance?
1: Right. There are lots and lots of biases. Uh, they're very famously documented, uh, by, uh, in books like, uh, thinking fast and slow, you know, a very famous book. Everybody's read Uh really good, um, summary of what traders have always known, uh, When a trader begins trading, one of the first things they learn how to do is control their emotions and try to look at the market objectively. And it's impossible, right? It's it's a very hard thing to do. And as good as you are at it, uh, it's still not possible to be a machine. And what I talk about in the book, and it is very uh, commonplace as a problem with people I teach, is that even machines have human biases because people have to program the machines. Yeah, The book is written not just for people who are gonna do that kind of work, but also for their managers to understand because it's not obvious if you don't think about it, that every little decision a machine makes is based on a whole slew of human decisions that have to be made first. Mm-hmm. So for instance, a very simple decision is um, you might say, I want to build a program to beat the market. Well, mm-hmm. what do you mean by beat the market, right? Do you mean you want high one-month rolling returns? Do you want a high one-year return? Do you want high daily returns? Do you have a stopout, right? Do you have a volatility limit, right? You have to define that measure in order mm-hmm. to be successful. You can't just tell a computer, beat the market. Yeah. You have to tell it what you mean by that, right? And all those decisions involve biases. And the person writing the program has to do the best they can at estimating how to do that impartially. And it's impossible to do for people. Uh, The same thing is true. When you test your strategy, you have to pick a time period to try to test it, right? You can't use forever because forever involves a lot of different regimes. It involves up markets and down markets and things that may never happen again. And then if you pick a subset of that, a particular time period, well, your human biases go into how you define that time period, right? Mm -hmm. That's a human decision or you could pick a random sampling. There's there's all sorts of decisions that go into building a quantitative model and all of them involve these biases. And importantly, uh, like the decision to beat the market, one of the biggest problems people have, one of the biggest biases they have is called selection bias. And selection bias is basically answering the wrong question. So you start the process thinking you know what question you want to answer. And then as you study it over time, you realize, Now that you know more about the problem, you have to go back and start over again because you're trying to solve the wrong thing. Hmm. Uh, And that's a big waste of time and energy. So that's the first thing I talk about whenever I teach somebody, really think about what you're trying to do. Take the time to define exactly what you're trying to do. Then look and see if you have the resources you need. Mm -hmm. Because the next thing people do is they say, all right, well, I'm going to make a model that beats the market on a 10 month rolling basis with a maximum volatility or or whatever. And then Mm -hmm. they go off and try to do that and they find that they can't get the data they want or they think they can get the data, but then they really want some like esoteric options data and that costs a lot of money. And now they have to figure out where they can get the money for the data. And so their project is stymied. And so thinking things through, not just trying to do them, Really thinking about your question and how you're going to resource your problem is a critical thing that you have to do. And a bias that a lot of people have is just try to get it done. Uh, Good is the enemy of great, right? You hear these things all the time. uh, And that's that's a huge pitfall that almost everyone I teach falls into uh, unless I guide them out of it. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I do in the book, one of the things that I think is special about the book is that I spend the first third of the book talking about the qualitative things, about finding your market, defining your product, thinking about who you're working for and what you need to satisfy them. Uh, Working through a business plan to make sure you're answering the right question and you have the right resources to do it. Because a lot of people jump right into the modeling stage, they skip over all that stuff, And then they fail because they didn't just sit down and think through the problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's one of the things I tried to do in the book that I didn't see in a lot lot of other books. There are books specifically about writing business plans. There are books specifically about writing quantitative models. And there are books that are specifically about managing those models when they start losing money. But I tried to combine all three and to make it contemporary. So it uses the most modern tools and methods. And that's, what I tried to bring to the marketplace, the the, the value I tried to add.
0: Mm-hmm. And one of the parts that I liked in your book is you even talked about the importance of understanding the firm where a person works, understanding the firm's culture and politics and how that can affect things. It's not just about, okay, let's get the highest returns possible. All of those types of things play a factor. Um, can you discuss that a little bit?
1: yeah yeah that that was one of my biggest surprises after leaving my first job. Uh, I worked for the same people for 15 years, and it was a very rational uh, investment driven job. I was just managing a portfolio and they wanted me to make money and not lose money, and that was really straightforward. But as I got jobs at other firms, other things became actually more important than making money. Uh, if you work for a firm that produces a product, then that product has to be right for their clients. It has to sell. Maybe it has to have a really interpretable and explainable method that you can get across in a sales pitch. And you may make a lot of money with an opaque model, but nobody's going to buy it. Mm -hmm. Uh, For other firms, uh, like a lot of retail advisors, the sales pitch is paramount. And Even if you lose money, they have a relationship with the client, the client's sticky, and nobody wants to lose money, but that's not really the most important thing. The most important thing is you have a narrative that you can sell people, and you have a a relatable and trustworthy strategy, and whether it works or not is secondary for a lot of advisors. Um, Now, as an investor, of course, you want to make a lot of money and you you want to have a great strategy, but you have to be mindful of what's important to the company and to your boss Mm -hmm. and a great strategy that they can't sell is worthless to them. Mm -hmm. So um, really understanding your market, your employer, what's important for the firm you're working at uh, is critical, especially for people who are very experienced who are really good at doing whatever it is they do, and now they want to do something different. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're a proprietary trader, or they manage their own money, and now they wanna work for a hedge fund or a bank and manage somebody else's money, or they wanna move to an advisor and and take on retail money. It's a specification problem, but in a qualitative way. You need to know what kind of problem you're trying to solve for your company, and that problem may be different than you realize unless you get some experience or you think about it, or you read a book like this, that exposes you to some of the forces that you might not have considered before.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's never as simple as just creating the best type of product. There are all these other layers and things and politics that you've got to consider for sure.
1: Absolutely. And it it also helps you understand what you're getting into, right? So uh, a good example is uh, a lot of retail funds and pension systems they have uh an a rate plus inflation bogey. In other words, they want to earn three percent over inflation, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. And it sounds easy and good. You tell a client, look, you know, you have a you're retired, uh, you want to hedge against inflation. If the prices of things go up, then uh you need to be able to afford them. Uh, so you want an inflation-related uh goal. Mm-hmm. The problem is uh, to earn that much money, inflation plus a few percent, you can't invest in riskless assets. You can't Mm -hmm. invest in simple bonds. You won't earn enough money. Mm -hmm. So you need to invest in things like stocks, but stocks don't have stable returns like inflation does. Mm -hmm. And so you're investing in something completely different from what your goal is. Your goal is a relatively stable increasing high rate return and your investment might be a very unstable high rate return. And you need to know going into this job to at least explain to your your boss or your clients that maybe you can make that return, you can make inflation plus a few percent, but you're not gonna make it every year. Some year you'll make a lot more and some years you might make a lot less and so if you look on the tin and it says inflation plus 3% everybody thinks you're going to make 5%, 6%, 7% every year year after year and that's not what you're going to do you're going to make 7% you're going to lose 10% you're going to make 20% you're going to lose 5% and mm-hmm. that's what they need to expect so um knowing your audience knowing what your product needs to deliver and importantly knowing what you need to do to satisfy that goal uh, is really something you need to know getting into this because it's, it's really easy to say, I'm a great trader. I make lots of money for my bank. I'm just going to put up a shingle and take client money and then get yourself into a, a whole different situation that you never anticipated.
0: Oh, yeah. It, th- those are such great points. And one other thing that I, that I read in the book that I really found to be very interesting is when you discuss the interactions between asset classes, and you basically said that those are unavoidable and that factors do a better job of isolating the essence of investment performance. So it's a bit of a mouthful there, but can you tell us what factors are and can you also elaborate on how investors use them effectively?
1: Yeah, that's really important. And I've I've seen it seen people not use it and make a lot of mistakes. And I've seen people try to use it and make a lot of mistakes. And essentially the idea behind factors is you try to pick things to predict that you can predict. Some things are very, very hard to predict. And uh, you wanna simplify the problem to the point where you can actually do it. Um, Even things that are easier to predict are very hard to predict, but for instance, interest rates are a relatively straightforward thing. They're not easy to predict, but they're they're pretty precise. You, you know what you're talking about when you're talking mm-hmm. about interest rates. Mm-hmm. But if you say you want to predict whether domestic bonds are going to increase this year, that's a very, very complicated question. There's a lot of things that go into how a bond performs, and mm-hmm. that includes the maturity of the bond. Maybe people like that maturity for some reason, they have a mortgage that's going to expire on that date. So they really want that bond and they don't want another bond, or maybe the bond's been stripped and it's very hard to buy because there's very little supply. Um, you know, the, If you don't invest in sovereign bonds, there may be a credit aspect. Uh, there may be all sorts of complications in investing in bonds. So you may mm-hmm. want to split it up into factors like interest rates, term premium, credit spread, things that are not simple, but are a lot less entwined than in the actual asset class. So that's the idea of using a factor, using a a simplification to create a less noisy, more tractable thing to focus on. And then once you predict those factors, then you reassemble them to value the bond. Mm -hmm. And then you say, well, this bond is worth X and the price is Y and is Y greater or less than X. So that that's the right way to do it. And assets are simpler than individual investments because they're diversified and and a lot of the noise averages out, but it's still really, really complicated. Mm -hmm. And then what a lot of people do also is that they predict the asset class and then they invest in a a specific investment without taking what they predicted and reassembling it into a price. They just say, well, I want to buy 50% of my portfolio. I want to make stocks. And so I'll just pick a few stocks and I'll make that 50% of my portfolio. But some of those stocks are a lot riskier than the asset class. And some of them are less risky. You can't just substitute your own uh, you know, choices of stocks for an asset class. You've got to pick them in a thoughtful and quantitative way so that they represent what you've been predicting. So in the first case, you want to simplify your forecast to something that's clear and easy to describe and hopefully easier to predict with less random noise. But then after you make that prediction, you want to make sure you thoughtfully turn that prediction into an actionable investment. You don't just take a very general prediction like interest rates are going to go up and then go buy a bond of your choice without factoring in. All the different things that you predicted to value those investments on the back end of your strategy.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so you know, I talk a lot about that. That's why the book is so long. There's a lot involved in doing that. Uh, and I have code on my website that shows you how to do it uh, for some limited data sets and then you have to adapt them to your own
0: purpose mm-hmm. yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like factor investing, has become much more popular than it was, let's say 20, 30 years ago. And I think there's a lot more research behind it as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been well known for a long time. Uh, People have known how to do it for a long time. It's tricky to do. It's not easy to do. And that's why I, I teach it, but also a big problem with how people, Invest in the market and related to factors is that there's so much randomness and noise mm-hmm. that a lot of people either think investing is impossible and they might as well just do whatever they want because nothing matters, or uh, they think that they're they're so good at it that they don't have to check their answers, and and both are wrong. And so one of the things uh, you might remember from the book is I have a graph in there about taking ownership, uh, taking responsibility. For your investing, mm-hmm. and that—that's absolutely critical. Any professional investor will tell you that you have to be disciplined and take ownership of what you're doing and work really hard. And the reason why that's so important is because it's so easy not to do it. Yeah. you can do all the work in the world and have bad luck and lose a lot of money and and some idiot can walk across the street and you know go up to the the horse races and and make a lot of money mm-hmm. so all that stuff is hidden behind the scenes all that hard work and it looks like somebody's making a simple decision and it's only after many many investments that that edge that professionalism shows itself and for a lot of people, it doesn't ever show itself. And um, so that, that's what, why factors are not always used, even though they were been known for a very long time, uh, because if you use them properly, it, it's hard to even determine when they're working. It's only over time, over at an average of many investments that you can outperform. Uh, otherwise, just the randomness of your performance makes it very hard for you to prove to people that it works.
0: Mm-hmm. That's such a hard thing for investors. I mean, it's a hard thing for humans in general. <clears throat> you can have a great decision-making process. You can do everything right and then just ha- have bad luck and have a poor outcome. And then it's hard to know, well, did, was it the invest- investment decision-making process correct? Or w- did I miss something? It's very, very challenging.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things I, I love about quantitative investing versus uh, something more uh, cognitive Well, cognitive might not be the right word, maybe intuitive. Um, and, and that's that I, I like trusting a process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it gives me comfort when I'm losing money and things are all looking like they're against me to say, I've done my research, right? I believe in what I did and all these emotions and, you know, all this fear and anxiety. that's all they are. They're just emotions and fear and anxiety and randomness. And if I didn't have a system, if I did what a a lot of very successful investors do, which is really think about problems and and put a lot of work into them, but not really have a quantitative system, then it'd be a lot harder to trust myself and to stick with it. Mm -hmm. And internal pressure is very hard, but a lot of people have external pressures that are even worse. They may have a family they have to provide for and they're worried about losing their job. They may have a manager who's very upset at them and threatening to fire them. They may have clients who want to withdraw their money, they may even sue them saying that you know they're losing money and it, it's against whatever the clients think they should be doing. Mm-hmm. So you know it's it's very hard to invest. There's a lot of emotions involved and for my particular personality, I like having this process. I like being able to tell my boss and my clients, look, we talked about this. We discussed that this is the right way to do it. We showed you scenarios where it might not work out and how that might resolve itself. And that gives me comfort. It gives me something to say. Uh, It keeps me from stuttering when people are yelling at me. uh, I have have a narrative. I have a game plan. I have something I believe in. And uh, it's not for everyone. But it gives me a lot of comfort.
0: Oh, yeah, that, that that's a great way of explaining it. Uh, well, Michael, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. Um, thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, just one last thing is where can people learn more about your work and about your book? Yes, please uh, buy my book on Amazon
1: or go to my website, quantitativeassetmanagement.com, uh, where I have videos and code and references and links to the book. And uh, if if you get, uh, if you matriculate at Columbia, please take my course.
0: Perfect. That's great. Thank you again, Michael. Really appreciate it.